Good morning. Welcome. Come on in. Bienvenido to the um, Rancho 3M team. It's great to have you back. Some of you, I'm seeing some of you that have been in part of the church at times in the past and you're here for the uh, Easter weekend. Welcome back to you. Welcome to all of you if you're here for the first time. My name's Mark, and I get to bring the Easter message this morning. We're going to be talking about three resurrection facts, looking at a passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Before I do that, and before we hear the passage, I just want to mention a couple of resources for you. I hope that there are a number of people here who are unconvinced about Christianity. This is a, a great place to be for you. We're glad to have the unconvinced doubters and skeptics here and if you're not sure about Christianity, but you're interested, we've got some resources that you might find helpful. We have a bookstore that as you go out of the auditorium, it's just on your right there. And there's a table with several books uh, that you might find helpful. One's called More Than a Carpenter. It's written by a guy named Josh McDowell, who was a skeptic. And he set out to disprove Christianity. And based on what he found, he actually became a Christian. You can read his story there. Today, I'm talking about the resurrection. There's a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus that's much more detailed, obviously, than I can go uh, into in one sermon. That's there. And then a pastor from New York named Tim Keller has a really a wonderful book called The Reason for God, where he works through some of the difficult questions of our day. How can there only be one religion that's true? And how could a good God allow suffering? Like we just heard about this, these bombings this morning or the, the death of a loved one, uh, Sidney Fox, things like that. Um, how can a loving God send people to hell? So he deals head on with a, a Christian answer to some really tough questions. So those are available in the bookstore. If you like free stuff, we've got a couple articles that are out at the guest table and at the Welcome Center as well. One is called, What is the Historical Evidence that Jesus Christ Lived and Died? It's an article from the journal The Guardian. And then a second, just brief article, Our Faith is Historically Verifiable or It's Nothing. And uh, both those articles are available for, for you. And those uh, links for those articles will be on the, uh, the email that goes out for those who get that after the service. So this morning we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus and three facts that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And Carol Sawyer is going to come and read that passage for us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
Carol. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we've just heard the words of a man who knew about Jesus and did not understand, didn't believe. And then, through an encounter with the Lord, he was transformed. We all have been on different journeys, walking different paths. Some of us are here believing. Some of us are not sure or doubting, skeptical. And yet you meet each one of us. And we ask that you would this morning draw near to each one here. I pray for the believers here, for those who have come to hold on to this gospel, that this morning you would strengthen and enable us to stand in the gospel. I pray for those who are on a journey like Paul was, maybe not yet believing that this would be a moment of great clarity and insight and understanding. We pray for the presence and the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ amongst us now. Amen. So several months ago, um, basketball star Steph Curry caused a stir when he made an offhand remark on a podcast. And the remark was that he didn't believe that people had actually landed on the moon. Now, later, he clarified that he was joking, but he didn't sound like he was joking in the moment. And before he knew it, it was too late. So these comments that he made went viral. And the result was he was contacted by the Johnson Space Center in Houston, and they offered him a tour the next time he came to play in Houston. He was also engaged uh, in a conversation by an astronaut named Scott Kelly in a conversation that was live streamed on Instagram. Now, the question is, if you've never been to the moon, how do you know somebody's been to the moon, right? It's actually not a bad question. And I want you to see what NASA did in response to this doubt that was raised by Steph Curry. Even though they couldn't take him to the moon, nobody offered, hey, we've got a rocket ready. Let's go. We'll show you. And then we can come back and you can verify. They couldn't do that. But what they did was they said, look, these, these landings happened 50-some years ago. But we are confident that we can prove to you that these landings actually did happen, that this is a fact, and we can do this in a particular way. How? How? How would you prove that a, a lunar landing happened 50 years ago? Well, here's what, here's, what they, here's what they say. On the NASA website, it says this. I found this statement fascinating. It says, there are answers to all the questions raised by the non-believers. This is the NASA website speaking to those who doubt the reality of the lunar landing. And, and what they do is they point you, the people who are responding to, and then there are quite a number of people who, who don't believe in the lunar landing. And so they're pointing in two, uh, two directions. First, they say, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. And so they say, we've got lots of moon rocks, and we've got pictures of astronauts on the moon, and pictures of the moon, and pictures taken from the moon. So they're saying, look at it and examine the evidence. But the other thing they say is also fascinating. They say, listen to the testimonies of the allies and enemies of the United States. And they point to 
Great Britain ally and Russia enemy at the time in, in 50 years ago, Cold War, saying, listen, even the enemies and allies, they were tracking this mission and they congratulated the United States after it was accomplished. So I want you to just think with me about what's happening here. They're saying to skeptics and non-believers, listen, you can be convinced of these facts if you will listen carefully to reliable sources and examine trustworthy evidence. Listen to the sources. Look at the evidence. What they're saying is that faith... See, they're asking Steph Curry to believe something. They're not going to take him to the moon. They can't take him there. But they're, they're saying faith is a reasonable response to solid evidence. Faith is a reasonable response to solid evidence. And it is. And we all live that way, don't we? I mean, we constantly have to believe things that we haven't personally verified. Is Australia really there? I've, anybody been there? Okay. So we've got a few witnesses, maybe some trustworthy evidence. I don't know. I don't know how credible these sources are. I've never been there. How do I know it's there? But based on the evidence, I believe in Australia. I believe it's there. We live this way all the time, right? Look at the evidence. Listen to the sources. Come to a reasonable response that often involves believing something to be a fact. So today we're going to take that same approach to this claim. Here's the claim this morning. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So this morning we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to be clear. Let's be clear about this. Here's kind of the main thing I have to say this morning. All Christian hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus. Hear that. All Christian hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus. There is no more important fact in Christianity. Listen, if Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead, Christianity just collapses in a heap. But you know, Christians and Christianity have never feared history. Christianity is built on facts. Christianity is built on historical events. Christianity is not a religion of myths, fables, metaphors. The basis for our faith is historical fact. Jesus rose from the dead. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage, a letter from Paul, the apostle, written to a church in the city of Corinth in ancient Greece. And we're going to examine three facts that support the resurrection of Jesus. And as we do this, listen and decide for yourself, is there enough evidence here to support the reasonable response of faith in believing that he rose from the dead? Fact number one, Jesus' death and resurrection were anticipated in the Bible. He says, Christ, here's the, he, verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What? What did he receive? Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here is the, the heart of this message called the gospel, the evangel, 
the good news that Paul proclaimed to this church in Corinth. He had been there 15 to 20 years before uh, he wrote this letter, and he's reminding them of these things. He's saying to this church, you can be confident in the facts about Jesus for several reasons. And one is the Bible itself, the Old Testament for Jewish people in that time, anticipated or saw ahead of time Jesus and his ministry, including his death and resurrection. In other words, when Jesus came on the scene, people didn't just make up things about him. He fulfilled things that were prepared in advance about him. Some of those are outright predictions. He'd be born in Bethlehem, for example. Some are more thematic. They're trajectories and hints and sort of foreshadowings that he fulfills. Some are pretty obvious and some are not so obvious until after he's been on the scene. One of the richest places, the richest veins you can go to in this anticipation of Jesus, especially his suffering and death, is the writings of the prophet Isaiah and especially Isaiah chapter 53. Have you, have you ever been watching a, a 4th of July fireworks display and you're close enough where you can see when they, when they shoot that that fireworks rocket, whatever that thing's called, they shoot it up and you can kind of see that little trail of smoke and then it kind of disappears for a second. You know what I'm talking about? And then you know what happens next? There's this bang and there's this explosion and then there's just light all over the place. Well, that's what Isaiah 53 is like. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah shoots up this Rocket chapter 53, and it just pauses up there and it hangs up in the sky for 700 years. And then when Jesus comes, lives, dies, and rises again, all of a sudden it just bursts open and people get it. And so this morning, I want to highlight for you something that we find. I'm going to just, you can read through Isaiah 53, and there's, there's lots of these fireworks flashes there. I just want to highlight one verse. But as I do this, I just want to ask you a question. I want you to think about what's happening. 700 years from when this was written to when it was fulfilled. What if today I said something, predicted something, and it was fulfilled in the year 2700? Would that be a credible source if you lived in the year 2700? That's, a, that's quite a prediction. It's hard. People around here can't predict the weather for tomorrow. We're talking 700 years, okay? And here, I just want to give you one verse, and I'll show you how this breaks open in the life of Jesus. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53. It says, therefore, this is speaking about this kind of shadowy figure, the suffering servant. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What, what does that mean? Well, it means this person's going to be rewarded, Okay? Portion with the many, spoil with the strong. Why? Why will, he, why will God be rewarding him? Here's why. Because he poured out his soul to death. Pause. How can somebody who dies be rewarded? Hmm. Maybe he won't stay dead. Okay, let's keep, let's keep listening. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And I want you to see those three phrases that are underlined. He was numbered with the transgressors. Do you know what happened when Jesus was crucified? Matthew 27, 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. Two transgressors. 
one on the right and one on the left. When he died on that cross, he bore the sin of many, Isaiah predicts, and one of the eyewitnesses, one of the disciples, Peter, writes his own letter and he says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins. Hear the echoes? You see Isaiah 53 firing off there? He bore our sins in his body on the tree, a reference to the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How about this last phrase? He makes intercession for transgressors. Luke, the careful historian who did careful research before writing his gospel story about Jesus, says, says this in Luke 23, 34, Jesus is recorded as saying at the cross, Father, forgive them. He's hanging on the cross. He is making intercession for the people who are killing him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There's just one verse. There are many more places we could go. And he was raised. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, I'm going to take you in a little different direction here for this one. This is going to be more thematic, okay? The Old Testament expectation of a Messiah who dies and rises again the Jewish people at Jesus' time didn't, didn't get that, didn't see that, but it was there, it was hidden in plain sight. This is why the disciples didn't understand when Jesus told them over and over and over, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and to rise again. It says over and over and over, they didn't understand, they didn't understand, they didn't understand, and they didn't understand until after the fact, until they had seen him risen and they had the help of some Bible studies with him when he explained some of these things probably to them, and they had the help of the Holy Spirit who helped them see and understand what was right there hidden in front of them. Have you ever had that experience where something was right there in front of you and you didn't get it? I just had that experience this week. 20 years ago, when Leslie and I and our, our kids, when we moved here from Pasadena, the church in Pasadena did this really sweet thing. They made this quilt for us. Here's a picture of the quilt. It hangs on our wall in our bedroom. I've been looking at this quilt for 20 years. And each one of these, these little white diamonds, see those in the, in the squares? There's a set of uh, nine squares there, and each one of those squares has these diamonds in it. And on those little diamonds, the people in church sign their names. It was so sweet. And so I, every time I look at this, I look at these white diamonds and I l remember people's names. And you know what? I, I had never noticed there's something else in that square. Can you see what it is? What's in the four corners pointing outward? You see it? There are arrows pointing out. If you focus on the white, you only see diamonds. But if you focus on the red, do you see it? There are four arrows. Okay. How many see the arrows? Okay, these are trustworthy sources, okay? And those who don't see the arrows, talk to the people with their hands up after the service, all right? This is great. It's just like, it's just like what happened. Some people get it and some people don't. This is perfect. This is, we're just reliving the experience, right? Okay? All right, we better take this down or I'm going to just lose everybody for the rest of the service. All right, get that slide off of there. Thank you. All right, so here's how it works. Here's what was hidden in plain sight. There's this theme, this trajectory, this foreshadowing of deliverance on a third day. It shows up in the Old Testament in a bunch of different places, 
But the most clear place is in the life of the prophet Jonah. If you know anything about Bible stories, if you had any time in Sunday school as a kid, you heard about Jonah because he got swallowed in a big fish, right? Sometimes people say, well, just says big fish, but it doesn't matter. Some fish swallowed him for how long? Three days, right? Jonah 1.17. And so Jesus comes along and he says in Matthew 12, they're saying, show us a sign. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. And he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus then in John 2 says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then each of the four Gospels records what I actually read from Matthew this morning. And that is that Jesus died on Friday, day one, was in the tomb on Saturday, day two. And on Sunday, the third day, which is the Jewish first day of the week, he rose. So the Son of Man will be like Jonah, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There's this thematic fulfillment that Jesus fulfills and and is is summed up in him. There's also a a little more direct promise. We can get that from Psalm 16.10. The Psalms, many of them were written by a great Jewish king named David, right? And David becomes sort of a foreshadowing of King Jesus. And so much of David's life anticipates Jesus' life. And when Jesus is born, he's born and identified as the son of David, which means he was David's descendant. And in Psalm 16, David is writing, as he often does, he was under great suffering and affliction many times in his life. And he is writing out of that affliction and he says, you will not, in Psalm 16:10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What's that? Sheol is the, just the place of the dead. It's where, it's where the dead go. Okay, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, who's he talking about here? Is he talking about himself? He says, my soul. Is David the Holy One? Well, David did die and his body did decay just like everybody else's body. But when Peter, Jesus' disciple, is preaching his first sermon in Jerusalem. He's preaching to a Jewish crowd. They know their Bibles backwards and forwards. He's preaching in the city where Jesus was publicly crucified. And I want you to hear what Peter says to a crowd of thousands. He says this, Acts 2.31, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, the Greek word for Sheol, the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, what he's saying is, crowd, this prediction in Psalm 16.10, this statement made by David wasn't actually about David, it was about Jesus. That's what he's saying. What's fascinating is, he's saying this in the city where Jesus was crucified. When those people hear Peter say this, they don't say, that's a bunch of hogwash. We can go show you his body in the tomb. It's right there. And they don't say, Peter, you're really bad at Bible interpretation. That's not what that means. That can't refer to Jesus. You know what they say? They say, thousands of them say, 
what must we do to become followers of that Jesus? They knew he wasn't dead. They knew there wasn't a body. They knew he was alive, and they wanted to become his followers too. All Christian hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus, and that death and resurrection is predicted in the Scriptures. Fact two, the risen Jesus appeared to many people, and we get quite a list here. It starts with this guy, Cephas. Who is that? Well, Cephas is another word for Peter. And um, Peter is one of the inner circle. Within the 12 disciples, there was this sort of inner circle of three, and, and Peter was one of those disciples. Peter, after Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends to heaven, Peter becomes the leader, not only of the disciples, but of the early church. But Peter goes through this incredible transformation. On the night of Jesus' trial, Peter denies Jesus three times, they, three different times, People ask him, weren't you with him? Oh, I don't know him. No, you're one of them. No, I don't know him. Three times he says, I don't know him. And then after Jesus has risen, Peter becomes so bold and courageous in proclaiming a risen Jesus that he's actually even willing to go to jail for it and does. What, what changed? Well, he saw the risen Lord, Jesus appeared to Cephas, verse 5. Listen, if Jesus' body was in the tomb, it's game over. It's game over. Listen to what Peter himself writes in his second letter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then it says Jesus not only appeared to Cephas, but also to the 12. These were the 12 disciples, one replaced after Judas committed suicide. And you know what? History tells us that almost all of these disciples died as martyrs. I just want to ask you a question. Don't answer this. But have you ever lied? Right? We've all lied about something, right? Why do we lie? We lie to get something we want or need or to avoid a problem or whatever. Okay, that happens. Would you die for a lie? Would you die holding fast to the lie that the leader of your little group died and rose again when he didn't really rise again? Would 11 of you do that together and nobody crack? Because probably 11 of the 12 died a martyr's death and all of them suffered tremendously. Jesus appeared to these 12 and they held fast to their testimony to the end of their days that he was alive. He then appeared, and this is a fascinating statement, in verse 6 it says, he then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then as sort of a challenge, almost, he, he says, hey, and most of them are still alive, although a few have fallen asleep. That's a reference to dying. So in other words, he's saying, look, this didn't happen that long ago. You want to talk to him? Go for it. There's hundreds of them alive. Got nothing to fear from history. Sometimes people say, well, you know, th there was probably something going on psychologically with these disciples. They, they really, really, really wanted Jesus to be alive and it was hard to imagine they couldn't be alive. And so they were, they were probably hallucinating when they saw him. Cephas, 
Okay, maybe one guy. Twelve, well, maybe. Can, okay, here's what we're going to do right now. We've got hundreds of people in here. We're all going to have the same hallucination, all of us, at exactly the same time. And then we're going we're gonna to hold on to it the rest of our lives, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Something happened to these people. They, they saw the risen Jesus And they held on to that testimony for the rest of their lives. Christianity has no fear of history. No fear of historical inquiry. History is Christianity's friend, not its enemy. All Christian hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number three. Saul became Paul. Saul was the persecutor of the church. And then he became Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, the apostle to the nations. NASA said something fascinating to me in that, on, on, on their website. They said, if you want to verify the lunar landing, listen to our enemies. Here's an enemy. When they say this, when NASA said that, they're taking a page out of Christianity's playbook. For here, in 1 Corinthians 15, is the testimony of Christianity's chief persecutor. I want, you to get, I want you to get the biography of Saul, who became Paul, clear. In Acts, the history of the church, written by the careful historian Luke, in Acts 7.58, there's the account of the first martyrdom, a guy named Stephen. He was stoned, killed for his profession of faith in Jesus. And it says, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the guy who's writing this letter. And then it says in chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, listen carefully, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He drove off men and women and committed them to prison. The chief persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He wasn't a doubter. He wasn't a skeptic. He was an enemy, the arch enemy of the church. And so he goes off on this journey to seek to find more Christians to persecute and imprison. And while he's on the road, he gets knocked down by a bright light and an encounter with a living person. And he says, who are you, Lord? And you know what he hears? This is what he hears. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting a very much alive Jesus Christ. And immediately then, he loses his sight. He's sort of taken to this house. And one of the more humorous scenes in the Bible, one of, the, one of Jesus' disciples is asked to go, the Lord tells him to go talk to this guy and pray for him. And, and he's like, do you know who you're talking about here? This is Saul, the persecutor. He puts people in jail. He kills people. Like, you want me to go pray for this guy? 
yeah, go pray for him. And he does. And, and Saul becomes Paul. And the persecutor becomes the apostle. This is, I, I tried to come up with an illustration for a dramatic reversal like this. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't do it. I thought about, okay, like a baseball player from your home city leaves and goes to a, another city like Philadelphia. And then I thought, no, that doesn't work because he already did that. Okay, like, I, and I thought, and I, do, I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but I, I thought about, like, what if the Pope went off on a trip and came back and said, I'm a Buddhist now, and I'm committed to spreading Buddhism around the world. Like, but even that, because he wasn't an enemy of Buddhism before that, I couldn't come up with an illustration that would sufficiently get at the, the dramatic nature of the arch enemy becoming the chief proponent and how does it happen? He tells us repeatedly, and others do as well, it came through an encounter with the Lord. Why would the destroyer of the church become the planter of churches? He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. All Christian hope rests on the resurrection of Jesus. And that's enough. I just want to ask this question. We've seen facts. The resurrection of Jesus, it's anticipated in the scriptures. The resurrected Jesus is seen hundreds of people, his own followers, multiple times. Dramatic transformation of the chief enemy to the chief proponent. Okay. Maybe enough evidence here to come to the reasonable conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I think there is. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. But what difference does it make? What difference does Jesus' resurrection actually make? What, what difference does it make? Well, let's, let's start with what if he had stayed dead? What if somebody had produced the body, had proved his resurrection was a hoax? I want to say this again. If you want to destroy Christianity, it's easy. Show us a body. Prove that Jesus is still dead. You ever played the game Jenga? I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, you know, how, how Jenga works. You stack up all these wooden little blocks, and then you start pulling them out one at a time. And, and if you pull out the wrong one, right, you know what happens. The stack falls, right? Well, if, if, you, if, if you can prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you get a falling over stack. There's no forgiveness. There's no hope for our own resurrection. You're on your own. There's no living Jesus to be with you and help you here today. As one author said, Jesus can be your hero, but he can't be your savior. He's dead. Can't help anybody. There's no confidence in a new age when all things are set right by Jesus. But thankfully... The scriptures, the testimony of allies and enemies makes for credible, trustworthy evidence. Jesus is alive. He is not here. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And so Christians, listen to this. This is powerful. This is life-changing. Christians place their hope not in trying to be successful in living a certain way, 
not in trying to be successful in keeping a moral code, not in trying to be successful in being some particular kind of religious person. That is not where Christian hope rests. Christian hope rests not in our own successful actions, but in the successful actions of someone else. Jesus Christ. And that is what makes Christianity different than every other faith system. Every other faith system, confidence rests ultimately in what you do. But the Christian gospel is so utterly different because our confidence rests in the finished, successful work of someone else. And what he has already done and completed, it is finished. And the power of that finished, successful work is what leads to transformation in the Christian life. Jesus did rise from the dead. So what? What difference does it make to know and believe that fact? Just knowing that he rose from the dead, or believing that he rose from the dead, won't change you unless you give yourself wholly to him. I've said repeatedly in this message that all Christian hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus. We rest in the resurrection of Christ, like you rest on your bed when you take, when I take a Sunday afternoon nap, for example. Okay, we rest all our weight, all our hope, all our confidence. This bed is going to be comfortable. It's going to hold me up. We rest our faith, our confidence, our hope in the risen Jesus Christ. Christians, J.I. Packer writes, hold that the Jesus of the scriptures is alive and that those who know him as Savior, Lord, and friend find in this knowledge a way through all life's problems, dying included. This is so utterly transforming. To know this Jesus, it's, it's much more than knowing historical facts. We know a living person. We know him in the power of his resurrection. If you, if you know about Jesus, but you haven't experienced this yet, this waits for you. This can be yours to know this person as Savior and Lord and friend, to find a way uh, uh, through all of life's problems, dying included. Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He's a savior. He forgives. He rescues. He reconciles us to God. He's the Lord. He leads us. He guides us. He guards us. He's the friend who is with you at all times, closer than your closest friend, closer than your closest companion who never leaves you or forsakes you. This is why the good news is good. It's not just something that happened a long time ago. It's a risen Lord who says, I will be with you. Savior, Lord, friend. We can know him in the power of his resurrection. And oh, that we do, oh, that we would, and oh, that we would know him more and more this way. 
So the gospel is like a baton in a relay race. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you and which you received, Paul says. He received a baton and he passed it on. And you know, they received that baton and they passed it on. And it made its way hand by hand around the world and across the centuries. And here we are on April 21st, 2019, 5200 Ox Road. And the baton is here. Have you received it? Do you know this, Jesus? You can. He's brought you here today so that you would come to him. Have you received this baton? Are you standing in this gospel? Praise God for that. As you go from this place, may you be strengthened in knowing this risen Savior. And may the Lord bring you to someone else to pass this baton onto. Now, I would remind you, Redeeming Grace Church, of the gospel which has been preached here, which we have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. May we go from this place resting in the hope of Jesus' resurrection, holding fast to this wonderful gospel, standing in the hope of it, and wherever we have a chance, passing it on to someone else. We're going to close with singing this morning. So if the band would come up, would you stand with me, please?